Support for WVIK comes from Kathleen Collins at the Dragonfly in Bettendorf. Using both conventional and alternative counseling methods for empowerment to help create change for individuals and couples. More information is at KathleenCollinsCounseling.com. Collecting poems on Scribble. Welcome to Scribble, 30 minutes of conversation, comments, and reviews on reading and writing, editing, publishing, and selling books. I'm Rebecca Wee. And I'm Don Wooten. If John Lithgow can make a collection of poems, so can we on Scribble. Seeing John Lithgow's collection of poems, uh, I got to thinking, how does he get to do this? <laughs> you know, he's famous enough to have connections, and he can put together his own his own list. Well, you know, and that's true. It's, uh, but I, I thought, I suppose that's one of the great advantages of celebrity. Uh-huh. You can kind of do what you want. <laughs> Some, well, he said in the intro, remember, that that he grew up with his parents reading poems, and so most of what he picked had meaning for him going way back, you know, way back to his childhood. But, of course, he was wrong <laughs> because he didn't have the Ballad of the Harp Weaver. Oh, that. that's right. Well... <laughs> It's interesting that his his um, his title of Poets' Corner is followed by the one and only poetry book for the whole family, and I thought, <laughs> huh, that's that's an assumption. Yeah, that is. Um, but, but but for his family, that yeah, was it. Yeah, I know. But <clears throat> what is it about poetry that uh, people get so bent out of action? I remember uh, Dave Barry wrote a very funny column once. When he mentioned, as an aside, that uh, of course the most successful writers are poets. They all have their own airplanes, and, and so on. <laughs> that's right. Uh, because writing poetry is not a way to make a living no. unless you're Robert Frost. No, and or Billy Collins nowadays. Yeah. But most, still, most people who write it and even are well known are have have another job. They have another gig. <laughs> Oh, I, uh, I was, I was uh, reading. Yeah, I have this book I put together over time that uh, I'd give talks and so on, and I put in here uh, a bunch of definitions of poetry. Mm, Yeah, and uh, I think it was Socrates said I decided that it was not wisdom that enabled poets to write their poetry but a kind of instinct or inspiration, such as you find in seers and prophets who deliver all their sublime messages without knowing in the least what they mean. And then Aristotle followed that up with, poetry is finer and more philosophical than history, for poetry expresses the universal and history only the particular. Hmm. So That's, that's, I think, an accurate way to talk about 
people who identify themselves as I am a poet and why am I doing this or why do I do this when I can't make money at it, I think you're right that there's something, if you love words and you are an emotionally, um, what, high, not high strung, but just intense person, then you need to find the language for it. So, you know, Donald Hall would say, poetry is the unsayable said. That well, was one of his lines that I've loved. But, you know, uh, I briefly was involved in writing poetry uh-huh. just because I was intrigued by Quint City's poets. Sure, I, yeah, yeah, I yeah. attended a meeting and thought, well, if I want to go to these meetings, I better bring something. Yeah. And so I wrote some poems. Uh-huh. Pretty lame stuff, but I wrote some poems. It's it's all—when I'm teaching poetry, you know— <sighs> The mood or the, or the idea or the subject matter or the time to write a poem varies so much that it's, I mean, it's really hard to say on Thursday night, I'm going to write poems because you might not be in the mood. You might not be able to. Um, so a lot of people think you just have to stop um, and sit down and write when you're in the mood and you have to stop everything else, but not very many of us can do that, you know. Well, then if you go to Quint City Poets and you read a poem, then they start to take it apart. Yeah, and, that's the you workshop. Know, that you could, and I think, why does it have to be that good? So I wrote this. <clears throat> <laughs> a fleeting thought, a surge of feeling cobbled up and given form, comes under a practiced eye to be weighed, measured, corrected and valued must a moment be a monument oh yeah um (laughs) no it doesn't have to be (laughs) not at all um and that's also the interesting thing are we writing elegies and odes with an audience in mind or do you just sit down and write about the mood you're in not imagining that anybody else is ever going to see it but you need to write it you need to get it out and yet there's an urge to publish. Yes, there is. For some people, some not so much, but yeah, because even if you're writing in solitude, usually we're speaking to somebody somehow, even if we don't have a single person in mind. You know, it's your voice crying out in the wilderness somehow. And and you do want feedback. Well, why did you presume to be published? I, you know... Um, <laughs> I like to ask embarrassing questions. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I was one of those who, when I went to grad school, I did not have any desire or kind of energy for publishing, but you get into an MFA program, and that's what you're supposed to be doing is publishing. And I wasn't doing it. And my professor, who's a, the poet I went to study with, kept saying, if you don't publish it, it's just journal writing. You're just writing in your journal for yourself, and that's great for you, but it doesn't it doesn't feed anybody else. And I thought, I I don't believe I have anything to feed to other people. It is for myself. Um, but I guess by being in that program and being put in that position, and then years later becoming friends with Donald Hall, and he absolutely believed that poets needed to publish and so he he just said I don't care what else is going on in your life you should publish you've got a manuscript send it out and I I remember sitting in my in my apartment thinking 
I don't want to do this, but if Donald Hall tells me I better do it, I better do it. And so I did send the manuscript out, and and that's when it got accepted. I had sent single poems out to literary journals, but not very, not very consistently. And I still don't like doing it. But I, I live in shame that I haven't, <laughs> I haven't been pursuing uh, publication because that's one of the things I'm supposed to be doing. Well, that's, uh, you know, it's, to be published, I, I occasionally, once you dip your toe in that mm. pond, it, uh, you're a little bit altered because it, uh-huh. I get, I get uh, among the many magazines, the poets and writers, yep. and uh, there's another one I can't think of what it is, but I always look and they have these competitions. Yes. You know, yep. and I think, I could pick up a cool $1,000 here if I could just write a poem. <laughs> and and if you understand that there are several thousand people sending their poems in, <laughs> and that usually they ask you for $20 because that's how they're going to pay their judge, is everybody who sends a poem in has to pay to do it. It's it's kind of a racket. It's also wonderful. It is, a, yeah. it is a wonderful thing. But when I'm telling my students to publish and I'm thinking, they're going to have to pay. You know, they're <laughs> yeah. going to have to pay to send their work out. And it's a different publishing world now since there's so much online. There's so many electronic journals and things that you don't have to do the way we used to do it. Most of, most of the authors... And poets we've talked to in this program are self-published. Yeah, yep. Because, uh, well, a friend of mine was a very successful writer. Uh, before she died, she had written 20, 21 books, hmm. which were which sold like hotcakes. Yeah. They were medieval mysteries. Oh, wow. Uh, and uh, her name was Gail Brown, but she published as uh, Margaret Fraser, F-R-A-Z-E-R. Huh. And she had a nun, Sister Frives, who was the nun in this convent that was in contact with the public. Okay. And that became her detective kind of person. Okay. And then she wrote one about a group of traveling players, kind of based on the Genesius Guild. Sure. And uh, very successful, but she finally decided that she was going to self-publish because she made no money from that at all. Yeah, yeah. Even though she, her books were selling, were selling yep. popular, especially in England. Uh-huh. Uh, all, I, think, I think all her books are still in print. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so if you self-publish, then whatever you make, you'll keep. Yeah, and you're not dealing with agents. And, I mean, the agents can do a lot of that work for you, but, yeah, yeah then you have to pay them. So. Well, um, I have here... We're looking at a couple of lists that other people have made mm-hmm. about the best poems and so on. Yep. And uh, I noticed that Sonnet 18 by Shakespeare is in both lists. He leads the one on uh, shall I com- uh, on uh, the Society of Classical Poets. Mm-hmm. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Yep. I could recite that from heart. I am, I've known it for a long time. Do it. But, Let's uh, hear it. What? You want to recite it? We should hear it. I'd probably... Oh, Shall now I, I put compare you in this... thee to a summer's day? <laughs> Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling 
buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. Sometime too hot the eye of heaven, shine, of heaven shines, and often is his gold complexion dimmed, and every fair from fair sometime declined by chance or nature's changing course untrimmed. But thy eternal summer shall not fade, nor shalt thou lose possession of that fair thou owest, nor shall death brag thou wanderest in his shade when in eternal lines to time thou growest. So long as men shall live and eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. Mm -hmm. What an arrogant thought. Oh, I know. <laughs> yes, it is. And yet it makes people swoon. It's, it's such a... <laughs> It's, um, uh, like, uh, Elizabeth Barrett Browning's, you know. Yeah. Uh, that's another sonnet that uh, really is popular. Oh, yeah. I don't think it's on any of these lists, is it? Um, no. Not the one I have in front of me. Nope. But Robert Frost made the Society of Classical Poets in the 10th spot with a road not taken. Yep. Yep. That is a. Uh, looking at those lists, are there any that you question? Um, not, I don't question what their, their greatness or their importance. Um, often when I go in through anthologies, um, I notice how many men there are, you know, and that was true of Lithgow's. And I was thinking in my own life, when we started talking about doing this with the Poets' Corner, I thought if I did one, I'd, there are plenty of anthologies of women poets, but I, that's probably who I'd pick because I would think back to myself as a 14, 15, 16-year-old kid getting interested in poetry, and it was always women poets that, that got my attention. Um, what's, what's interesting, it, you know, for almost as long as poetry goes back, men did it yep. because men put women in an inferior position. Yep. Women were property. And their job was to have and raise children yep. and keep the house clean and uh, plant yep. the garden and do those things while men would engage in lofty yeah. things like war. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or go off to their to their studies and write their poems, but somebody else would feed the kids. You yeah. know, so. But mm -hmm. I must confess there's a pile of great poetry that comes from those ages oh yeah no it, there's no debate about that I just probably at this point in my life when I look at something like Lithgow's book and I don't disagree with the poems he picked but my list would be different not because not because I think he's chosen unworthy titles um but I my own sort of personal predilection would go in a different direction I suppose Take a look at the Society of Classical Poets list. Is that the one with from the Poetry Foundation, or is that? No, this is oh, yeah, a, yep, I got it. Yeah. Why don't you read through that list of the ones they consider the top ten poems? And just respond to whether I agree or not? Well, yeah. Um, they're all—I'm teaching right now the Wordsworth poem, The Daffodils. Well, read them. The oh, in order? Are, yeah. Shakespeare's Sonnet 18, which is the Shall I Compare Thee to a Summer's Day, John Donne's Holy Sonnet number 10, Death Be Not Proud. Then three is William Wordsworth's 
Daffodils, which also just goes by, I wandered lonely as a cloud, which is the first line. I wrote a great parody of that. For Did the you? Just <laughs> That's a beautiful one. Lots have done that. There, there are a lot of poems that sort of respond. It just sets itself up, I suppose. To, but it, and at the same time, it's really beautiful. The idea that you can um, counter your own darkness in a way by you know he's a romantic poet so the natural world will save you you know will will save your life um then there's wadsworth longfellow's psalm of life and tell me not in mournful numbers milton's on his blindness and when i consider how my life is spent yeah that, that, that's first, a great one yep it is it's wonderful they also serve who only stand and wait and that's been my excuse. Ah, uh-huh. <laughs> I'll just stand here and wait. <laughs> and then number six has Blake's Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright. And that is, whether you're teaching it to little kids, whether you're teaching it, to, I'm teaching it in the Augustana Prison Education Program right now. And, um, oh, what is it about that poem that just gets to people, the, the sound, the imagery, the sort of, ferocious beauty and danger of it. You what know, immortal hand uh, or eye could frame thy dreadful symmetry? Symmetry, yeah, yeah it's just... Powerful poem. Yep, so that one, that's... And Blake, bless him, you know, he... The poems he wrote, he really believed were being dictated to him by God. You know, he didn't take credit for them. He felt like he was he was being spoken to and he his job was to write them down. And uh, you know, there's something to that mm-hmm. because uh, I that that left brain right brain thing is interesting because when you're young, your right brain is very much alive, mm-hmm. and you hear voices and you see imaginary yep. playmates and so on. Yep. And, and we don't realize that our brain is not fully formed yeah. when we're born. And it slowly takes shape, and only when you're about in your 20s does the important part, the judgmental part, finish. The the editor arrives, (laughs) (laughs) the voice of judgment. (laughs) But I think sometimes when you sit down to write, all of a sudden it just comes out, and you're not sure why. Yeah, yeah, yep. A student just did that in in class yesterday. I gave them a prompt, and they wrote madly. Their their task is not to stop their pen. They just write, and if they run out of their idea, they just keep writing. And when he was done, it was five minutes maybe, and everybody was doing the same prompt, but he kind of raised his hand at the end and said, would it be okay if I read this? Because I can't believe I just wrote this. <laughs> And it was amazing. It was beautiful. There was rhyme. There was, you know, and and he just kind of said, I don't understand. You know, where did this come from? And Well, you know, there... Shakespeare is one such. Yeah. And Mozart in music. Yeah. Yep. It just, stuff just poured right out of him. Yeah. And, <laughs> uh, you know, I think for writers nowadays... Um, you wait. You hope that that happens. One of my teachers said, "You have to write every day so that that when that moment is is upon you, you're not fighting with your spouse or doing something else. That you are, you know, ready for the poem." And there's something to that too. But of course, it's impractical. Doesn't make 
doesn't make much sense. Lucille Clifton, um, who had five kids, I think, or maybe seven, her poems tend to be very short and pretty funny in some, but she, when someone asked her once why her poems were so short, she just said, I've got seven kids or five or whatever it was. It's like, I don't have time to get lost in the, you know, in the reverie of poetry. I get an idea and I have four minutes to get it down. That's why they're short. And there's some truth to that, I'm sure. Um, when you get down to the one after Blake, Blake. number seven, Yep. Uh, I wonder about that. The Ode on a Grecian Urn? Yeah. Um, I think Keats is... Odes are beautiful. They are hard to teach to students nowadays. Um, the formality of them and the um, maybe it's the adoration of sort of classical form and beauty. And I find them wonderful, but they're not, I'm not drawn to them the way I am to say Blake. Well, um, the same way. I, I, concede guy's a heck of a poet yep but i don't turn to him yeah that's kind of how i am <laughs> i mean I, I it can be really interesting to revisit and you know reread and go oh yeah this i forgot this is pretty wonderful but he's not um yeah he isn't someone i think oh gotta teach that one <laughs> and then they've got shelley's ozymandias and that is a wonderful that, I've gone through several lists, and that makes a lot of them. Yeah. I think it's it's sort of the hubris of that it's addressing, I guess, and, you know, the idea that that we we want to last forever through our through our art. But it's also the storytelling angle of it. You know, I met a traveler from an antique land. You know, right away you're kind of, I want to. I want to know what. This My is name doing. is Ozymandias, and round the back, the parents say, yep. you know? "Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's." You know that is the interesting thing about being alive. You can't imagine being dead, <laughs> and at uh, for some people, this gets to be a problem. Yeah. Because wait a minute, you know, I, I sometimes think, why have I filled my head with so much stuff? If it's all going to be... Just go away. It's all going to go away. It's not going to be of any use to anybody because it's in my head. And... Uh, but you've found ways throughout your life to let it out of your head, you know, whether it's sitting oh, yeah. here talking or writing or... But it's not you know. chiseled in stone. There's no oh, statue yeah. or anything <laughs> like that. And uh, Not yet. <laughs> uh, you know, people, uh, people carry on. I say, look. When I die, they're not going to be chanting my name. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but you don't know that. That's the thing. Well, it's you know? true. You don't know that. You but don't. I've been careful to keep a relatively low profile, mm -hmm. although I have done things that I'm quite proud of. But uh, none of them are the kind. I've never sought national publicity for the Genesis Guild or and he never sought higher political office than the state of Illinois. Yeah. I figure enough's enough. And uh, so there's no reason, there's no reason to, to think that you are going to be perpetuated in anybody's mind or imagination. Right. And it's a good idea to get that out of your mind right away. Probably, yes. <laughs> now in this day and age, if, you, if, if you're banking on your 
fame after death. You know, I guess you won't be around to see if it doesn't happen. <laughs> I won't be around to hear the funeral orations <laughs> or anything. It's like in the Odysseus, when toward the end he's challenged, you know, to say who he is, and he mm-hmm. says, I am Odysseus, and my Kleos reaches the heavens. Mm-hmm. My fame is immortal. Yeah. Son of a gun it is, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, then the last on this list is Emma Lazarus is the new Colossus. The new, uh, let me read that to you. Sure. And see what you think about it, because uh, this is about the Statue of Liberty. Yep. Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame with conquering limbs astride from land to land. Here at our sea-washed sunset gate shall stand a mighty woman with a torch, whose flame is the imprisoned lightning, and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that Twin Cities frame. Keep, ancient lands, your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Oh, it just makes you want to weep, doesn't it? When you <laughs> What do you think the shape we're in now? Exactly. You just get torn apart by immigration yep. argument, and Lord knows there's... There's a county in Iowa, I think it's Green County. Uh, rural America realized they're dying, and so they are actively trying to recruit sure. these Latin American yeah. uh, refugees to come here. Come here. We want you here yeah. Yeah. because they can rebuild that yeah. county and that town. Yeah. Okay, and we get down to the end. We get down to frost and the road not taken. And that, oh, how much has been written about that poem. You know, it's... Uh, oh, you know, the, the simple fact of the re- repetition of the last line, and miles to go oh. before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. The one is in time, the other's in eternity. That one, though, isn't that, um, that's the end of stopping by woods on a snowy evening, isn't it? Two roads diverge in a yellow wood. wood. And sorry, and I, I could not, not take. Yeah. travel both. Do you have the text of that one? No, I don't. I think the last two repeated lines that you have, that's, that's Yeah, you're right, stopping by woods on a on snowy, a snowy evening. evening. Yeah. And that's the one... Um, that I still find really mysterious to teach because because people respond so differently. Some to think this is about suicide, and some to think it's about just noticing the the beauty of a moment. Well, you know, the one thing. Oh, I got a long way to go here, mm-hmm. and then you think, yes, in my life I have mm-hmm. much. A lot yeah, to do still. Yeah, a lot. So that the simple repetition of that line is a knockout. Yeah, it is. It's and it it leaves you just kind of floating around, wondering yeah. about the poem. Yep. Yeah. yeah, and his rhyme scheme in that one is also really interesting if you look at how how it's sort of pulled forward by the rhyme sound. 
Yeah, well, we didn't make our list, did we? We didn't get to our own. No, but then looking at other lists, uh, you know, the Hope is a Thing with Feathers by Dickinson made the top of the Poetry Foundations. Yeah, that's And then The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot. My Lord, you could spend your life digging through that. I know, I know. The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Mm-hmm. That wonderful image, like uh, a patient etherized on a table. <laughs> I know. That was the poem that made me admire Eliot and 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 give him my attention more than some of the others that are taught. You know, it was um, the creation of that character and that attitude and that kind of repetitive despair and paranoia, I think, was okay. is powerful. So we haven't. We haven't come up with our own list of poems, but there are so many, and there's so much time, and we have roads yet to travel. Yes. <laughs> miles to go before we <laughs> compile our list of favorite yeah. poems. <laughs> That'll do it for this session of, of Scribble. We hope you've stayed with us, and that you'll be back for the next time on Scribble. Scribble.